0: Hi, this is Matt Slepin and welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. Today's conversation is an interview with Richard Barkham, the Global Chief Economist and Head of America's Research with CBRE. And we, of course, are talking about the outlook for the real estate sector coming out of the lockdown phase of the pandemic. This is our second in a row broad conversation on this topic. Last episode was with Gunnar Branson, And it's also bookends with a conversation that I had with Richard's colleague, Spencer Levy, CBRE's Global Chief Client Officer and Senior Economic Advisor and a fellow podcast host back in April of 2020. Spencer and I had our conversation going into the COVID lockdown. Today's conversation is Richard and CBRE's view coming out of the lockdown and into our reopening. We are all trying to make sense of the next cycle and our business which has been so disrupted by COVID. Richard and I talk sector by sector and no surprise, apartments and industrial come out on top. Retail will continue the secular transitions that were accelerated by COVID alongside the continued need for grocery and entertainment retail with the most fuzziness and wide range around the impact on office. I just attended my second in-person conference in a month. First was the National Multifamily Housing Council Conference, which I mentioned on the prior episode, and this past week was the University of California Berkeley Fisher Center Real Estate Conference at Pebble Beach. The attitude at NMHC was kind of ebullient, although acknowledging the real challenges around affordability and lack of supply in multifamily. The attitude at the Fisher Center was also quite positive with the widest range of how the heck do we really know around what new normal we may find in two, three, four years around work from home and the rhythms and design and business models of office space. And my thanks to Richard for exploring all of these topics in our conversation. Folks, our next interview is episode 100. And we'll be having a very special guest, our first guest from corporate real estate, David Radcliffe, who heads real estate and workplace solutions for Google. This will be a broad ranging conversation with one of the most influential leaders in corporate real estate. And then we'll have two episodes in a row focused on environmental sustainability in our business, speaking with the heads of EVE and the ESG from two major advisors, as well as an investor in the energy area of PropTech. A deep dive on the subject in the hot month of August when some of these matters are viscerally front and center. Since we're essentially at episode 100, I want to again thank my colleagues at TerraSearch Partners for their sponsorship and support of Leading Voices now into our fifth year. When we started Leading Voices with ULI, we could not have imagined that this would have been such a long-term project. That we would have amassed such a broad archive of conversation with such amazing guests and have had the support and been inside the ears of so many listeners. Thank you, Terra Search Partners, thank you guests, thank you listeners, and I'm looking forward to these continuing conversations deeply exploring our industry. Also, with today's episode, we're adding two new features to the show notes on the Leading Voices website. First, we'll now have a link to a one or two minute audio clip from the episode to get some of the highlights. Second, we're now also providing full transcripts of the interviews on the website going forward. Be sure to check them out at leadingvoicespodcast.com. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Richard Barkham. As always, if you're enjoying the conversations, please forward your favorites to your colleagues. Please rate us on your favorite podcast app, and feel free to email me at matt at TerraSearchPartners.com with comments, questions, or ideas for our second 100. Enjoy the episode. Richard Barkham, welcome to Leading Voices in Real Estate. This is a bookends conversation. I had an interview with your colleague from CBRE, Spencer Levy, back at the beginning of the pandemic in March of last year. And at the time we were looking forward into the pandemic, then like three or four weeks into the lockdown. And now 15 months later, we're kind of under control. We feel post pandemic, people are moving along, but we're not. And there are impacts on the real estate business both short-term and long-term, that we're going to get to talk about today. So I'm thrilled to have this conversation with you. And you're the head of global head of research for CBRE. Just talk about that and what that role means. Yes,
1: so I'm global head of research for CBRE and also chief economist. And what it means is we've got a research crew at CBRE of 600 people or so globally, 350 roughly in the States, 150 in Europe, uh, and the rest, the balance in APAC. And they're very focused on just doing exactly what you said, providing a forward view. Sometimes it's a quantitative view. Sometimes it's a more nuanced, mm-hmm. you know, thought-out, judgmental view. But we're also focused on making sure that we collect real estate data, and we house it, and we manage it, and we deliver that to our brokers as well. So. That's broadly speaking what the research team does. Globally and I manage those people. I've um, got some brilliant talent within the CBRE research team and I, I try to do a technical role of chief economist which is to do with macro forecasting and you know the precise nature of uh, rental movements and cap rate movements around the world. So mm-hmm. that's my role.
0: If I think about it, it's interesting. I think of it from the micro to the macro, and at the micro, I know research is integral to pitches on specific deals and the research behind how we're going to sell an investment sales of specific asset. Maybe a bunch of your 600 people are thinking very, very locally and asset by asset, and then you're rolling all this up somehow, And, and then you have people who are totally global in their outlook. I assume that's probably a small part of the 600-person team.
1: Yes, that's right. We have very market-focused researchers. Then we have regional and national researchers. And then we have global researchers. So we can advise on the outlook for a particular building. But also we could talk about a global portfolio, for instance. And both from an investor perspective, should the, the portfolio rebalance one way or the other, and from an occupier perspective. How can they optimize their platform and provide their people with the best and lowest cost platform to function as a corporation? So, we, you know, we can give advice at all levels and we have fun doing that. I
0: yeah, guess. I bet. and I always have this fantasy. I have it in my business, which is 11 people, but I have it for all companies, which is if you were able to mush together the minds of everybody into one mind, and that one mind was able to take all of that wisdom from disparate sources and collect it, make sense of it, and then speak from it. The goal of technology and the goal of a big organization is to do that, that hive mind. I don't know the right words of that. And that's not just the mind of your 600 researchers, that's the mind of your best brokers and your best investment people. How much are you able to distill or get collect that kind of data within an organization as vast as CB? I
1: mean, that doesn't happen naturally. I mean, we are party to all of these wonderful conversations. And it's one of the advantages of being a, an economist in a real estate company. We talk to a lot of businesses so I can look at the data. And I can talk about what's going on, you know, with somebody who's running a big business. So I've got the anecdote to feed into, to counterbalance the data. So it's a great position, but it doesn't happen naturally. You have to manage it. You have to make sure that, you know, the people at the front end are then connected back into the organization and that you have the forums in which you can share your ideas, that you can feed into coming to a group view. Managing that kind of information, the, both the formal information, the data that's coming out of the business, and the informal information that's coming out of the conversations uh, occupies, a despite the fact that we've got the technology, it employs an ever larger part of my daily life, just to make sure that that kind of Collective wisdom that you referred to is managed, it's distilled, and it's fed back into advice and action and thought leadership. Right. And you have to manage it pretty intensely.
0: And it's a goal because you will never achieve it.
1: No, it's a horse race. I, I prefer to think of it. And you, you might be a nose ahead, but you'd never get a neck ahead. You, you, you know, and it's always moving. New data sources arrive, new market sectors arrive, right. you know, new people have to be talked to. And, you, you know, you have to collect data on different sequences as they arrive.
0: I want to kind of go across the industry and think about what you're seeing and what you're learning. And so yep. maybe the place to start is coming out of COVID. Let's talk about the different sectors of real estate and which sectors come out better, which sectors come out worse. What was going to happen anyhow? What's really changed in that? And I think the two darling sectors either continue to be, or most certainly are right now, both multifamily and industrial. Talk a little bit about those two sectors, and then a little bit in contrast with others and what it means coming out of COVID for those parts of the business.
1: Let's talk about industrial logistics. I think when we were talking about this at the start of the crisis, we thought that maybe you know, we'd have a big economic hit. It might take uh, industrial and logistics a year to recover. It would be the fastest recovery. Maybe office would take uh, a couple of years to recover and then retail maybe three years to mm-hmm. recover. That was our kind of prognosis based just as we saw uh, and quickly became evidence just the acceleration in the digital economy with both online shopping uh, and also remote working. In the event, soon Logistics didn't break step. I mean, it right. might have looked moder- moderately weak for a quarter, but I think 2020 saw Q4 2020. We saw kind of almost record levels of net absorption, a huge occupier demand coming out of two things. I mean, we you know we can talk about the the secular shift to online retailing. Physical goods was hugely boosted by the pandemic, and you know that's obviously got to be find its way through the distribution system, and it really paid off in terms of robust demand for industrial and logistics. So INL didn't break step.
0: And one question about that, did that mean that it got ahead of itself where it should be, or it just accelerated the place to which it would become? So without the pandemic, does that sector or does that demand go down or just keep up at that high level?
1: Well, I mean, I think these levels of demand probably will go down a little bit. I mean, I think we're already seeing it in the economy. There is now a shift away from goods spending. and This is what's driving the recovery, a shift away from goods spending towards services spending, towards food Mm -hmm. and beverage spending, towards restaurant spending, towards hotel and travel. So there is some diversion of, you know, revenue out of those, those sectors, and you know, of course, these kind of rates of seven percent economic growth—they won't continue forever. I mean, the good news is they'll continue for the next twenty-four years, but they won't continue forever. Mm-hmm. You know, so we do see some moderation in the pace of additional demand for space. But one of the really good, call well, it the good features of the current surge in industrial and, and logistics is. it... it Unlike in previous episodes of of huge concentrated growth in real estate, we haven't got a supply surge. Right. We've obviously got new supply coming online, but I think it's more or less keeping pace with demand. I look at the, the supply side and its supply is increasing. There's no doubt about it. But is it getting ahead of itself? No, it's not. I think it's keeping nicely in pace with demand. And frankly... The current, you know, we could do with a bit of easing in the pace of demand. Occupiers could do with a higher level of vacancy, frankly, than they've currently got.
0: It seems to me that we're reworking the infrastructure of how our economy works. And industrial has to get to that new place of infrastructure. And you you don't want to get there too fast because it's just too hot. And it hurts the way that the economy works. However, that shift is just going to happen and we're going to be there. And you're just talking about that trend.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, and I see this around the world, there's some natural breaks on supply. We are building out the infrastructure, but there is a natural kind of little downward pressure on the supply side break, which is extremely helpful given the history of real estate and the tendency of real estate to overdevelop.
0: <laughs> okay, let's keep going. So we're going to tour around the sectors because I want to spend most of the time on office. multi-family within the context of post-COVID.
1: Yeah, I mean, multifamily us all about, you know, just how well it held up in terms of rent collection. Mm -hmm. You know, obviously, there's been a lot of support, the generous unemployment support. There have been more moratoria on evictions, and they've been very supportive. We've seen a little bit of a notch-up in vacancy. Interestingly, the the biggest uh, notch-up in vacancy has been in Class A space, and I think that's really, as people have, over the course of last year, you know, moved out of the cities. Um, And I don't think they were fleeing the the pandemic. They Mm were just, you know, why pay a high rent to enjoy urban amenities if all the urban amenities have closed down? Good point. So most of the, the vacancy rates have leveled off now. They're not really anywhere near recessionary vacancy rates. And, you know, for the property, they're not far off the vacancy rate that you'd probably want for the normal functioning of a market. As the unemployment comes to generous employment benefits come to an end and the eviction moratoriums uh, come to an end, then we may have some hiccup in net operating income from in certain segments. On the other hand, there's a huge number of jobs that are being created right now that are unfilled. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that we're going to get a big jolt in unemployment, and that's really for multifamily, the crucial variable to watch. And all of the evidence that I have on the ground is that the the May letting season in the big cities such as Boston and New York has been pretty healthy, actually, much stronger. So I think those grade A vacancy rates are likely to come down in the big cities as people go back into the cities.
0: Mm -hmm. It'll be interesting to see if the industry is able to rework itself to be able to do more what we're now calling attainable housing versus just luxury? Because all the new construction in the last, most of the new construction last cycle was at the class A luxury end. There will be a balance now, I think, between that type of construction and more affordable, attainable workforce, whatever the word is.
1: Yes. I think the private sector can be really heavily involved in uh, affordable housing. You know, the multifamily is a highly skilled kind of professionalised industry that, that is very capable of providing housing solutions. But, you know, to keep the rents affordable, they will need tax breaks. They will need some sort of government assistance. And it's not particularly expensive to achieve. But I think the will and the motivation is there on the part of the industry. It just needs policymakers to be open-minded and thoughtful about how they, they tap into that and it's actually, you know, I think I find also as I speak to institutional investors, there's so much emphasis nowadays on ESG, mm-hmm. but also all of the evidence suggests that affordable housing or attainable housing, whatever you call it, is a very bankable asset. The cash flows coming out of it are very stable bond-like investments. So I think there is a, an institutional uh, demand for affordable housing because, you know, people want to, to do good. I think the industry is ready to respond again, just needs the policymakers to be intelligent and thoughtful about you know, making the tax system work for the private sector to provide those affordable housing solutions.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point. And also on the investment side, if we can begin to have investors look at the asset with predictable bond-like returns at predictable bond-like risk profile and hold periods, then that could also change the game of how we build and what we build for and we're able to build for.
1: Yeah, totally agree.
0: Cool. So let's move on. I want to have each of these conversations on a separate podcast so we could dive deep on them. So that that would be interesting. But uh, talk about retail, and then we'll keep going through the sectors.
1: Yeah, it's very interesting retail. Um, you know, we've looked hard at that. The last couple of quarters have actually seen positive net absorption in the retail sector, according to our data. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you might think, why? Why is that happening? You know, you've just been talking about all of that trade diversion out of retail to industrial logistics. Well, you've got to remember that, that the vast majority of retail space is actually grocery anchored. It's strip, it's neighborhood, it's in the suburbs, it's convenience based. Right. And of course, with, with everybody living and working and focused up a bit more on suburban life than they used to be, I think that you know, those grocery-anchored neighbourhood and community centres have started to pick up. So I'm not saying rents have stabilised in in the kind of the higher-end malls or, or anything like that, but there are large parts of the retail sector which are, are actually thriving at the moment.
0: It Maybe if you take the headlines out of the bottom 20% of retail that shouldn't be there, if you just take the outliers out of the story, the rest of that industry, what you're saying, may be pretty stable and in good places.
1: Yes, that's right. You know, the kind of community-based retail, where, you you know, you've got a, a big, nice grocery store anchoring, you've got neighborhood kind of community functions. You know, that I think is doing extremely well. As you referred, you know, you've got the the kind of the B and C malls that were probably overdeveloped in the 1980s. They had a brief period of prosperity in the 90s going into perhaps up to 2008, 2009. They probably need to be taken out. And we are seeing that, actually. You know, we've put out quite a few interesting publications just on the conversion Mm -hmm. of the B and C malls to logistics centres. So Mm -hmm. it is happening. I'm, I'm not saying it's widespread, but it is happening. The issue then arises about, what about big city retail, the kind of really high-end, high-fashion retail, you know, the power malls? Mm -hmm. I think, clearly, the crisis isn't quite over for that sector of the market. You've seen a lot of turbulence uh, in the retail sector, in the the retailer sector, with companies filing for bankruptcy and, and then kind of reinventing themselves. Any retailer that's got physical retail now has to have a seamless internet operation to back it up as well. So the physical retail mm-hmm. and, the, uh, and the online retail, they need to work at the left and the right hand, working absolutely in concert together. And I think, you know, it, it will take a little bit longer to get those kind of pedestrian flows up and back to pre-pandemic levels, both in the big cities, because they, they do rely on office workers, they do rely on tourism, and in the power malls as well. Um, <laughs> although the power malls are, are coming back quite quickly, I think there's a there's another twelve months of you know maybe stress and strain in that you know fashion orientated retail sector.
0: Couple questions around that. First of all, I'm going to guess that people who used to hang out at malls, that this will be a secular change. People hang out in malls in a different way than they hung out in malls during the '90s or 2000s or whatever. I just I don't do it, but I'm a focus group of one and I'm not relevant. But it'll be curious to see how that changes. That's question one. And then, question two these are totally unrelated questions, but it's really interesting. In San Francisco, street retail had a lot of vacancy before the pandemic, a lot of vacancy. Just the moms and pops couldn't afford the way the rents were going. So, in my neighborhood in North Beach in San Francisco, it just kind of half the places were boarded up before the pandemic. And I'm wondering what the future of that might look like for restaurants, urban fabric, small shops. It's not an institutional question, but you may have a view on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think what we've got to just also be a little bit alive, too, is the, the Gen Zs. That demographic seems to like, I mean, they're digital natives, but they also like physical retailing. And they control ever more kind of economic resources as they come onto the labor force. Mm-hmm. So... You know, I think, but as I say, there's no evidence that they don't like going to malls or going to retail. They're particularly addicted to eating out. They're Mm -hmm. particularly addicted. They're addicted to kind of fine dining. So I think you're going to see an ever greater blurring between the retail opportunity and the leisure opportunity. I mean, it's not as if it hasn't already happened. You're going to have to have ever more emphasis on really high-end imaginative leisure opportunities in order to drive will be parts of town, you know, that aren't able to meet that kind of leisure-based demand and, and, and create that pedestrian flow. Well, it's not as if we don't need more houses, is it? You know, some of this retail space needs to, to go back to residential. And if you go back to Europe in the medieval era, which you probably don't want to, I mean, that's how shops came about in the first place. They were houses, right. and people just you know learned they could sell things through their front kind of window. Well, you know, all you've got to do is kind of, I think, to a certain extent, you know, convert some of that retail stock back into residential. Indeed, it would be one of the things, when I talk to policymakers mm-hmm. around the world, that's really, really key to negotiating the pandemic or the post-pandemic world. We need an urban environment which is really flexible. We can't afford to say this is going to be retail forever. You know, We've got to be able to allow new uses to emerge quickly.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. The flexibility is important because in a lot of new construction apartments where they have to put in ground floor retail, it often doesn't work. When it works, it's great. When it doesn't work, you're stuck with it, and you should have the flexibility to turn that back into a housing unit, turn it into a work live workspace, whatever it is. Hard from zoning to be able to do that because they were achieving certain social goals at the moment that that particular plan was approved and then the owners stuck with it.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So flexibility, we're in a period of accelerated change. So flexibility is just the only way to negotiate that.
0: Yeah. So I think you just pivoted to the last of the sectors in the sector that confuses me the most about what the future looks like and the sector that's been most emblematic of our industry for decades and decades, which is the office sector. So talk to me about what the heck's happening, what you see, what the transitions are and what the permanence things might be.
1: We've been on this about 40 years as far as I can see from the data, possibly even 50 years. Secular increase in the amount of occupied office space. And what's it done? It's been hyperfinance in the 90s, or oh, domestic finance in the 90s, global finance in the 2000s. Then it's been tech that's been occupying offices. And it's had an enormous benefit. I mean, really, a lot of the urban regeneration has been around that clustering of office activity in the big cities. And it's had fabulous benefits in terms of regenerating old industrial areas within cities, creating a whole ecosystem of kind of food and beverage and fashion to services. So the stakes are high. Now, one of the disbenefits is is clearly that kind of all the big cities around the world and in North America have become extremely expensive. Mm -hmm. Very expensive places to do business, very expensive places to live. So, you know, technology tends to come, and I think what it sets up is we should not overstate this, but a mild tendency for some of the economic activity, the office-based activity, to shift out of the downtown area into the suburbs and into other remote places. I don't think it will be an overwhelming movement because... You know, the benefits to businesses of working face-to-face with their employees, training employees up, creating corporate culture and doing business with clients, all of that, they're not going away. There will be a mild shift in economic activity out of the central areas into the suburbs. Good for the suburbs. They've been neglected for too long. Does
0: that mean sub- back to suburban office parks or does that mean workers get to work somewhere in the suburbs where the center may still be elsewhere?
1: Yeah, I think it's that. I think it's the latter. It could be we may well see suburban office markets playing a larger role in business models over the next five years. It's too early to say.
0: You've used a couple of different words through the conversation. One is a rebalancing maybe rebalancing between urban, suburban, rebalancing between uses at any given time, maybe flexibility, which we haven't talked about on what the work week looks like. And you guys just did an occupier survey that gives some intelligence around these topics. A- any thoughts about, and I'll mash up yet, co-working into the description. And, but to talk about all those things together, the office is not dead. I think that's the ultimate answer to this, but it's reworked and it's more flexible and it transitions to something different going forward.
1: Yeah, I mean, with the proviso that I just made, it is too early to really call it um, on all of these trends. Our latest occupier survey is quite clear. What we've just seen in the last Occupy survey is there was never a majority, but there was a substantial minority in that little bucket that companies were going to make a major reduction in space. That is kind of disappearing off the agenda. Mm-hmm. So all those people who thought they were really going to reduce the amount of space that they, they used, they've all gone into the mild reduction in space. So I think corporate America, probably on balance, although it's not a huge thing, mar- thinking that they might mildly be able to reduce the amount of space that they use. They're going to be a little bit more focused on you know, a core portfolio, with the flexible space that they can ramp up quite quickly and ramp down when they need to. My own guess is that that is probably temporary as well. So the the kind of emphasis on flex is probably a little bit higher than it's going to be in the long term when companies actually have to get back to a normal business environment.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting because so that transformation takes place around what do lobbies look like? What does the build-out look like? And there's so many questions around that Gosh, if I had a decision to make, I'd kick the can and try to make that decision in two years or three years if I could. I don't know how I'd buy that right now. I don't know how I'd value that. And that's probably reflected in both cap rates and transaction velocity in that sector right now.
1: Too early to talk about cap rates and transaction velocity in the office sector, clearly the buying and selling of offices requires a degree of business travel that we just haven't got yet so mm. a little bit early to say there but just in terms of you know interior configuration instead of configuring offices as being the, the place where people go there and do the bulk of their work you know focused individual work the offices have become much more about collaboration about teamwork about meeting spaces about idea generation that New configuration of offices around collaboration is the other side of it. Now, you've got to remember as well, the other trend that pre-existed the pandemic crisis was one towards densification, particularly in the high cost locations. I think some of the the other post-crisis trend that we see is de-densification, a certain amount of de-densification. Uh, so is the office dead? Absolutely not.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. So, um, We're going to change subject a little bit in a second, but um, I've never made this observation before in the podcast, but hearing your voice as you talk about the different sectors, as you moved from industrial to multifamily to retail, when we got to office, you were talking about something fuzzy and you talked about something fuzzy in a fuzzier way than you did the other sectors where there's more clarity about what the present and the future looks like, which is absolutely true. This isn't you. It's all of us. Coming to that conversation with questions in our mind, knowing it'll be there, but we just don't know what it's going to look like in this transition period.
1: Yes. Yeah, so and, I, you know, I'm an office economist. I'm a macroeconomist, but I'm also a kind of amateur historian as well. And I try to look back at the long term trends. And there's no evidence, I think, that you get in real estate of of sectors just dropping off a cliff. It doesn't happen that way. The changes that happen in real estate, they play out over 10 years. They don't play out over 10 months. So firstly, you know, to summarize, we'll see once people get back into the office, we'll see a much greater reversion to the pre-COVID situation with people doing more or less what they did prior to COVID, you know, that will come back. You know, and that will surprise people. And then some of these other trends about how you reconfigure office and how people figure out what's, you know, how many days they want to be in the office, how many, you know, they want to work at home. And then, you know, it doesn't make the life, as I've kind of, as you said, I've, I've given this kind of fuzzy picture. You know, right. imagine you're a big corporate space planner and you've got, to, you've got to run your portfolio for people who are coming in three days a week. Right. Probably everybody, you know, because of the, the whole emphasis on collaboration... Everybody wants to, those three days a week are the same days. So almost can't reduce the amount of office space.
0: Absolutely true. The next podcast I'm doing is with David Radcliffe from Google. And we're going to talk globally on the same exact topic. And he's wrestling with that as deeply as anyone does because of his global workforce. And they're making plans and you got to do business. And you got to do a lot of business as Google does.
1: If I could just, uh, you know, add in one final thing, however,
0: yeah. which is,
1: I've said the pandemic is irrelevant. I mean, I think for me the key data point that I'm watching for the office sector. I mean, we've got great economy, we've got growth in jobs. Right. In fact, the labor market, the office market, labor market is kind of really hot right now. People can't hire enough. I am watching very closely the ridership numbers on the metro system in New York. What our intelligence is telling people are heading back into the city right now. People are moving back into cities, uh, into multifamily. They're coming back into the office. And if you look at public transport into the cities, it's yeah. going up. Yeah. But public transport means taxis, it means Ubers, it means cycling, uh, it, means that, it means buses. The key thing, and it's not happening yet, is just getting that ridership on the metro. Back
0: in the subways. Totally agree.
1: That's the key constraint right now. And I suspect if I were to make a plea to policymakers who want to get the world back to normal, we need some sort of nudge. We need some some sort of creative action to get, you know, that that metro ridership in the old economies, it wasn't a pleasant experience at the best of times. Mm -hmm. And we are not in the best of times. So something needs to be done to get ridership back up.
0: Really good point. Two data points on that, and then we'll change subjects. One is the Foo Fighters played at Madison Square Garden last week, and it was at capacity, and people were screaming, shouting, and having uh, stuff come out of their mouths while they were yelling songs together. So people are comfortable with that. If they're comfortable with that, they could be in the subway. That's comment one. Comment two, in my 20s, I lived in Japan, and I took the subway in Japan while a study abroad thing, and the guy I lived with's job was a pusher. And a pusher meant he pushed people into the train so that more could fit in. And the last comment to that is a lot of the people on those trains back then, 40 years ago, were wearing masks because it was normal. So that's what urban life used to look like. And it was a normalized thing. Uncomfortable. There were pushers, but it was OK.
1: That's right. And you know, I, I, for one, have decided that even long after the pandemic has gone away, I'm going to continue to wear a mask in public transport. It will probably save you from colds and flu uh, as well, so why not?
0: Totally true. And I am going back to a rock concert and I will get close to people and we'll all scream and shout and yell together and it'll be really fun. Um, Talk about two other aspects of this and then we're going to talk a little bit about you and how you got here. One is talk about the different markets in the states, particularly urban versus suburban and how that winds up changing through this and that kind of longer term changes. And then the second is give an international perspective on all that we've spoken about as well.
1: You know, investors are pushing out into what would previously be called secondary cities. Um, I think the other trend, obviously, uh, in the Americas is the trend towards the, the south and the east and the south and the west. The Sunbelt cities are growing pretty rapidly as well. I think those trends pre-existed, COVID. they will continue. And, you know, a lot of the places that we would have called secondary cities have actually emerged as tech hubs as well. For all of the technological changes that we've already talked about, they're very viable locations for very high skilled people to to go and live and have very productive careers. You know, they don't always need to be in the urban core for that. So that adds a kind of permanence to that. Renaissance and secondary cities. So I think we'll see that continuing.
0: Mm-hmm. And talk about it from a global standpoint. So if we were having this conversation and we were in Britain or we were in China or Japan, what might this look like?
1: Britain always kind of somewhat similar to America. So all of the conversations that we have had about urban, suburban, revival of secondary cities taking place in the UK with Brexit, I think there's actually an emphasis as well on building up those secondary cities within the UK, which probably over the last 20 years feel that they had drifted away from London, which was doing very well. So there's a deliberate effort to build up the secondary cities uh, in the UK. As for Europe, I think the cost of petrol is much higher. So what we've seen in America is people shifting back to their cars. I don't know that we're going to see that so much in Europe. I don't see such a permanent urban rural shift, uh, urban suburban shift in Europe. I think things will go back to normal in Europe pretty quickly. And APAC, uh, you know, these sorts of debates, maybe apart from uh, Australia, they don't, they don't really have relevance. In APAC, the population, the age of the population is younger, much greater preference to, to work in central locations, and, you know, the size of the housing stock in Asia individual units much smaller. So I don't know that people particularly want to go and, you know, kind of spend their lives working at home. So we noticed pretty quickly that APAC, Asia in particular, got back to the office almost as if nothing had happened. And the same is true of malls. So some of these debates, I think they're meaningful in to a certain extent in Europe. They're not so meaningful in Asia.
0: So let's totally change the subject. And I want to find out how Richard Barkham got to this place this podcast has long been a podcast about career stories and career journeys and so we're trying to let young people know that they could have a career just like yours in research in real estate and in economic thinking about real estate so just talk about your background and what got you into this line of business generally and then we'll track through your career a little bit
1: yeah so i'm british father was a naval officer mother was a teacher At school, the the subjects I enjoyed most were economics and geography. And, of course, real estate fits nicely into somebody who likes economics and geography or economic geography. Um, So that kind of uh, spatial awareness is is extremely good. I went to university to do economics uh, and did a PhD in economics at the University of Reading, which is the prime real estate school in Europe. And it's about 25 miles west of London. I was kind of absurdly academic at the time, really. And I just, I wanted a a career in research And, you know, an academic career just seemed to be super interesting to me. So I stayed on. I was invited to become a faculty member after I did my PhD. I spent the next 10 years at the University of Reading publishing books, teaching students. I probably, it's a big real estate program at the University of Reading. I probably taught something like 1,500 active Participants of the UK property market. I participated in some great research projects and gained a lot of technical skills. By my mid-thirties, and this was all in the area of economics and real estate. Mm-hmm. I was developing commercially valuable skills, and I was increasingly in demand as a consultant. And I made, you know, quite a number of private sector contacts through that. And reading, being 25 miles west of London. I was able to tap into the London market. Mm-hmm. The London market in the 80s and 90s was absolutely booming. And eventually, though, by about mid, my mid-30s, I I'd got bored of academic life, literally bored. I'd been at the University of Reading for 14 years, man and boy, got slightly fed up of my students going out. That's the other thing you notice, as you get to become a mid-career academic, mm-hmm. how badly the profession is paid. So I got fed up with my students going into London and earning more than me. So uh, in the end, I didn't actually actively look for it. I, I think I did a visiting scholarship with Norm Miller and David Geltner at the University of Cincinnati. So I went to the States for a while and worked with those guys and came back and I was still kind of bored of, of being an academic. And eventually, you know, somebody, a consultant came along and said, would you like to take a position in investment research with a company called Hillier Parker, which was promptly bought by CB, part of a CBRE family. I stayed there two years, a kind of ranging shot in business. And then I moved to a brilliant company, the Grosvenor Group, which is a private property company of the Duke of Westminster. So if you're interested in history, it's just a great company to work for. But they also, their core assets were Mayfair and Belgravia, 300 acres of prime central London. I worked there and I, I fell in amongst the development community because it was a big mm-hmm. uh, developer. We developed offices, we developed malls. And I was a kind of died-in-the-war uh, investment academic, but I fell in with the developers and I got involved in developing London offices, a uh, big mall, Liverpool One, mm-hmm. regenerated the city of Liverpool, If anybody wants a career in real estate, period in the development industry is just indispensable. You learn more about real estate than you'd ever find in books. So then I had this background, academic background, and I had some some actual on-the-ground commercial experience. I very quickly moved into helping Grosvenor deploy capital around the world – And then in 2014, CBRE came and asked me if I would be global chief economist.
0: So let's just go back to Grosvenor for a few minutes. And I think of the word venerable when I think of Grosvenor. That's like the perfect word for that 300 some odd year company. And they're big in the States. We do work with the Grosvenor people who are just wonderful folks. And it's fascinating the way you just described it, because first, what lit you up was talking about doing... The work in development in England and Great Britain, because the work becomes really real.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, you know, there's there's everything involved. There's a thousand and one commercial decisions and activities. And I was lucky enough to be able to deploy research in all of those. You know, deploy research to try and persuade people to put equity capital into projects, deploy research to try and get big retailers to come and take uh, a large amount of space in the malls that we developed. So I learned. I was able to put my academic yeah. learning to to into practice. But, you know, any big development just throws up problems, complicated little, you know, problems, you know, come up every day, every week, and you've got to solve them and you learn by doing it.
0: Yeah. And now you're complementing your academic background with practitioner 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 in the real world brutally around individual deals. So, what a brilliant pivot.
1: It was super fun. I was very privileged to, to work for Grosvenor. It had yeah. social conscience as well. Not many people know that, I mean, they'll know Mayfair and Belgravia as being prime global right. uh, rental. They don't know that 30% of the housing units on those two are affordable. Mm-hmm. The affordable housing was an essential part of how the Grosvenor estate worked, Mayfair and Belgravia. So, you know, just, just a, a chance to see that in action and contribute in a small way to taking
0: it forward. One question, we talked about this a few minutes ago when we were talking about the multifamily sector and companies that take a responsibility in their business and their business practice. And I'm thinking if you're a venerable 300-plus-year-old company, in real estate, we don't generally look at it that way. (laughs) We generally look at a transaction and may even have a life cycle of three, five years. But I'm wondering what the perspective of a 300-year-old owner who cares about their brand and hopes to be there in 300 years in the future, what that may mean for the behavior of that business or other businesses that kind of play like that.
1: Yeah, I can summarize that in one word, and the word is stewardship. We were inculcated with the idea that we were just stewards of this land and that we would have to hand it on, not only in full working order, but enhanced still delivering what it was set up to do to the next generation. So you always take decisions, not just to maximize the current income, although you know anybody with a commercial mind wants to do that, but also how's that going to resonate in five or 10 years' time? How does that particular you know, development or transaction impact the bloke next door? or the, the business sector. how do we use our skills to kind of maximize the value in, of this brilliant land asset?
0: That's a wonderful word, it should or could be a core value in some of the ways that we operate our business. And it's interesting, I never thought of that precise word defining my clients in different ways in search, right? You work with clients of a longer term perspective, their reputation means everything, those words fit in that bucket. So then you show up at CBRE. So talk about how that shifted your perspective in that third act of your career. And what's that meant for you?
1: You know, Grosvenor was an entry-level global job. You've got kind of 18 offices around the world. CBRE's got 380 offices around the world. So it's just, you take a step into a bigger, uh, you you know, you need that global experience, but it's a hugely bigger company. But the change in perspective, uh, you know, I think it's, You go from stewardship, obviously, with a a company that's based around brokerage, it's all about transactions. But really, the perspective that the current management team at CBRE sets is really just to strive for excellence. Mm -hmm. It's always about achieving excellence, excellence in results for our clients. You become very client focused. Quite often, that's around a pursuit and the closure of a transaction. I enjoy that kind of remorseless pursuit of excellence in this area. Um, It's also CBRE, very successful M&A company, so the company's growing, Mm -hmm. now Fortune 120. And what really I enjoyed about CBRE, I have to say, though, is in 2017, uh, they said to me, "We we want our chief economist to be in America. So I was able to up sticks at a relatively late stage of my career and move to America and just immerse myself in the real estate industry in america and it's been i hope i've made a contribution others would have to judge that but it's been a fabulously rewarding experience to learn more about american life uh, corporate life civic life political life just a whole bunch of stuff that you as chief economist have to have an opinion on
0: right and how much of that late career change just changed for change sake or are you talking about america's kind of interesting I'm curious.
1: I've always spent a lot of time in America. And if I could, you know, people always used to joke and say, you you should have been born in America. so I've always loved America. So the opportunity to come here and just, you know, learn a whole, you know, learn how to live in America, learn how to be successful in America. Mm -hmm. You've got to uh, learn new things about, when you're making a presentation, the things that work in Europe don't work in the States. When you, so you have to learn about presenting material, you have to learn about how people react you know particularly as a manager and i started out by saying i managed 600 people you've got to learn that you know americans react slightly different to people elsewhere in, in the world uh, just the opportunity to learn uh, has just been fabulous did you have a choice
0: of where to move and, and how did you choose boston if that was a choice
1: the, uh, Boston came about because we have got. Uh, you may be aware of a little company called CBRE Econometric Advisors, uh-huh. which was founded by Bill Wheaton of MIT and yeah. Ray Torto. Uh-huh. They were coming to the ends of their. You know, they were they were moving into retirement, and they wanted somebody to look after senior economist to be there just to make sure that company transitioned and played a part in the life of CBRE. So I moved to Boston in the days where you, in order to run a company, you had to be located in the same city. Mm-hmm. And I would say as well, if you're a European coming to live in America, you know, going straight to Dallas might be a bit of a culture shock. Going straight to Bo- going to Boston, you know, it doesn't feel
0: that different. Yeah, Boston, you know, one of the oldest venerable cities in the US. There's huge yeah. cultural ties.
1: Yeah, that's right. And um, there's a lot of Europeans there. The streetscape is different. You know, it's kind of it's medium density. It's red brick. Right. These are all things and the place names and Feel the street familiar. names. Feel familiar.
0: Yeah. Uh, so we're going to start wrapping up. One kind of one surprise that you found coming here that you did have to adjust. You talked about public speaking. I don't know if that's the one, but pick a surprise and change of behavior and in, in your life?
1: I'll tell you what, a really pleasant surprise, okay, it's just how accessible boating and cheap boating is. I'm a, I, I like sailing. Uh-huh. And compared to Europe, you know, there are just boats everywhere in America. You know, even in land, you know, everybody, every other person's got a boat. So the accessibility and relative cheapness of boating of all forms in America, just a really pleasant surprise.
0: Second question, Last question is, what have we missed in this conversation? What haven't we talked about that our listeners need to know is coming in real estate?
1: I think I would say we've had this big shock, both from COVID and also government stimulus. We've got to, I think just because the COVID is disappearing, which I believe it is, not disappearing, but coming down to manageable levels, I think we've just got to be alert to aftershocks. I would be dishonest if I could actually say where they are, but they will be there. You you just don't get this kind of economic event without good things and bad things coming as a result. So let's not, let's not get complacent. The world is improving. We're on stimulus. The economy is recovering. Let's just keep a a flexible and alert mindset, I think, to things that might pop up.
0: That's a wonderful summary. It's, Interesting. I just wrote down not binary thinking. I hate binary thinking.
1: There is a lot of long-term continuity in the built -built environment, and we can all take comfort from that. But I just think the economic policies that have been put in place, there will be unintended consequences, which nobody can quite see yet. And we just need to keep our wits about us as we negotiate the next three years of, of coming out of covid and and winding down the stimulus.
0: Well said. Last question on leading voices is always your advice to a young person thinking of a career in the real estate business.
1: I think I would go back to what I said. I mean, um, having a a background in geography, you know, spatial awareness, I've found always extremely useful. If you want to go a bit further, just to, to kind of a good understanding of urban economics always helps. But I also think if you can find some place in the development industry for a while, you will find that a fabulous place to learn about real estate. And that would carry you through a brokerage career or a, an investment career or any sort of or a management career going forward.
0: Great advice. It's interesting. I think of development as the most multidisciplinary thing I've experienced in my life. And you have to understand, and, and it's like an orchestra leader because you have every different player that you're having to command through the process.
1: That's right. And you have to learn the law, you have to learn financing, you have to learn construction. You have to learn, and particularly you have to learn how to negotiate with people and get them to do what you want to do. It's a very interesting learning
0: experience. Wonderful. Hey, Richard, thank you very much. Uh, Really enjoyed this conversation. I will see you at a conference in the future, I hope. You're always up on the stage, and I'll come say hello, but let's keep this conversation going, and I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Matt. Okay, this was great. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening into Leading Voices, and I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. I have a request. If you enjoyed the episode and found it to be valuable, please share it with a friend or two. If they're podcast wary, take their smartphone in your hand and subscribe for them and teach them to listen. You'll change their life. Seriously, thanks for listening and keep in touch. You know you can reach me at matt at Terrasearchpartners.com. See you next time.